we needed to be fairly fit before we went. Not so much for the flight itself, but for the potential survival situations we may have found ourselves in. But it was more of a psychological thrill than a physical thrill. Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones, the first to sail all the way around the world in a hot air balloon. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, hot air balloons, or lighter-than-aircraft, have been around for centuries, but it wasn't until March 1999 that human beings were able to circumnavigate the entire globe in a single trip in a hot air balloon. The two guys who did it were British balloonist Brian Jones and Bertrand Picard, a Swiss balloonist and psychiatrist. They co-piloted a massive hot air balloon called the Breitling Orbiter 3, which launched from Switzerland on March 1, 1999, and landed in Egypt 19 days and 27,800 miles later. I met them just eight months later when they wrote a book about their adventure. So here now, from November 1999, Brian Jones and Bertrand Picard. you find that many people still think of a hot air balloon as the balloon in the Wizard of Oz with just an open basket and a couple of bags of sand and a little dog named Toto. This is a very different kind of balloon than people think of when they think of a hot air balloon. Yeah, that's true. I I mean, but the principle is the same. And the principle is that you simply put this balloon into the air with all the technology you need in order to do that. And in this one, in this case, to keep it in the air for up to three weeks and keep two people alive at perhaps 40,000 feet. But in essence, what you're doing is you're putting the balloon into the arms of Mother Nature and uh, just trusting yourself to the wind, uh, no matter whether it's a hot air balloon with a little basket or a, a sophisticated high-tech balloon like ours. Well, if you recall from the movie, as he's taking off, he, she says, come back, come back. He says, I can't, I don't know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't really changed much. I mean, the idea of this balloon was uh, conceived in 1783 when the balloon first flew. And... Uh, Little has changed insofar as the, the principles involved, and even some of the technology hasn't changed too much. <laughs> but, uh, of course, other elements like the very high-tech fabric we had, which had very good insulating uh, properties, and the life support systems on board were uh, probably as high-tech as you could get. Well, at that altitude, they'd have to be, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Good heavens. Uh, that... I've talked to many, many explorers, you know, mountaineers and undersea explorers, and they always tell me that it takes many, many months of long, hard, very arduous preparation for a very, very short journey. This is obviously the case in here as well. You, you went through a lot of planning. A lot of planning and also a lot of failures. I failed twice before succeeding, which shows that if you want to have a dream come true, you have to work a lot and put a lot of energy and sacrifices before the dream can be realized. Oh, well, that's, that's true for anything worth having, isn't it? Yes, exactly. but you know, there are a lot of people who believe that everything should come immediately when they want for when they want it, so they don't work for it, and then they are disappointed against life because they don't have what they want. And it's a very common reaction in the people. Is it true that you learn as much from your failures as your successes? Yes, absolutely. But, but you know, the definition of success is just that you try one more time than the number of failures. <laughs> That's true. But it's one thing to, for, for something in the laboratory to fail and you just say, well, all right, I'll try it again tomorrow. But if you fail in this, you can't just turn around and try again tomorrow. It's, again, the months and months of preparation, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the, uh, the interesting things about this project in terms of having to get it absolutely right is that this balloon stands 180 feet tall. It's impossible to test. It was never tested. And so, therefore, the first time it was inflated was on the, the morning of the launch. 
is it that fragile? Uh, yes, it's extremely fragile, uh, but also it's really difficult to uh, to find a building that will take an 180-foot balloon, and also the helium, because we, we used helium in it. Uh, the amount of helium it used cost something like $150,000, so uh, it's a pretty expensive uh, piece of equipment when you're just trying to test it. And that's another part of this month's planning that people don't foresee, is that this is a costly venture. This isn't something you just go out and do over the weekend for the fun of it. You also go, of course, ballooning for the fun of it. But if you want to go around the world, you need more than the fun. You need the fun. Otherwise, it's better not to go. <coughs> but we had the luck to, to have uh, Breitling, the Swiss watch company, as a sponsor, to have a very efficient team, to have a good constructor who built a wonderful balloon. And all these pieces of the puzzle have to fit perfectly, otherwise you just cannot go. And also all the diplomatic help that we had to overfly certain countries and the weather gurus who were so good to find the right trajectories uh, across incredible places in the world. This is by no means a two-man operation, is it? No, absolutely not, but I think we should go always, all the 20 or 30 people in each lecture and each interview to show how much it was a teamwork. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you coming back to the, the aspect of fun, I guess that cuts to the very heart of why you would do this in the first place. Why do you do, you do it just because it is a great adventure? Yes, uh, we do, and, and I hope Bertrand won't mind me quoting him, but he puts it very in very good perspective when he says, we didn't want to have done it, we wanted to do it. Now, now the two of you are very physically fit, I and mean, you look like you're in, in very good shape as opposed to others of us in the <laughs> studio at the moment. This is This is something that's very... This is not just sitting on your butt in a little balloon for three weeks, is it? Uh, well, funnily enough, it, it, to some extent it is. Because <laughs> there wasn't much room to do anything else. But uh, uh, no, we, we needed to be uh, fairly fit before we went. Not so much for the flight itself, but for the potential survival situations we may have found ourselves in. But it was more of a psychological thrill than a physical thrill. Because... All the time, even if we were not moving on our seat very much, we had these flushes of hope to succeed, and then the news that maybe there would be bad weather or the burners were having problems, so we were down and we were always fighting against despair or too much hope. And that was really exhausting. Did you have a, a dartboard with Richard Branson's picture on it and throwing darts at? <laughs> I mean, would, would, would you? No, I think he was doing that when we were in the air. <laughs> but it, it, it adds to the adventure, doesn't it, when you've got somebody else who's trying to do it too? I think it adds to the adventure in uh, the perception of, of onlookers. Um, of course, it, it added spice to our flight in so far that, that perhaps if there had been no competition we may have delayed the flight until next winter because we were right at the very end of our weather window. And that just might have happened. I'm not quite sure whether it would or not, but it, it could have had a bearing, couldn't it? Yes, but a competition is something that happens every time a couple of people have the same dream. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there were a lot of people who were dreaming of going around the world. And if we had failed, I think there would be even more people in the race, maybe ten teams instead of six. How do you choose... I mean, there are an infinite number of ways to circle the globe. How do you choose which way you're, which which route you're going to take? The wind chooses, not us. Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't even have a general idea of how you're going, to, where you're going to go. Yeah, we have. Um, uh, of course, we there are basically two elements in in each of the the hemispheres, north and south. 
one's a polar jet stream and one's a subtropical jet stream, and, and these are just uh, a, a matter of world uh, weather. And so the aim is to use these fast winds if possible. Uh, and during the winter, then you have the best chance because the jet streams are not um, messed around by the huge storms in the in the Far East, and so they tend to uh, be a little more, uh, a little less disjointed, let's say. Um, but we did learn, and it was a perception, funnily enough, from most teams, I think, that the idea was to take off, find a jet stream that went all the way around the world, stay in it, and land. And we found in our flight that uh, our success was due to the flexibility that we had to actually use a little bit of a jet stream, okay, accept that it's going to die out and then come down, maybe a little, just a few thousand feet lower, wait for the next weather system to come, pick it up, and, and on we go again. So it was a whole series of steps, yes. our flight, wasn't it? And that was the big learning from the previous failure. We had a 10-day flight to Burma from Switzerland, mm -hmm. and during that moment, I really realized how important it was to play with different levels of wind. And I was convinced that we were going for a three-week flight. And many of our competitors believe the opposite, but only because they never made a long flight in duration. Some had made long flights in distance, but never more than two and a half days. So it was really interesting to see the different strategies, which of course included difference in fuel reserves, uh, size of the balloon, and things like this. What was your best day along this trip? I think the day that started on the 1st of March and finished on the 21st of March. Because it was really like a big flash of, of awareness, of beauty, of admiration, of course of difficulties also, but when you have the feeling to do some, something so different than usual, so that you are on the point to make a really big achievement, you're so concentrated that the notion of time is lost, you're always in the yeah. present. And If, I, I would say that if we could live like this on the, on the, in the normal life on the ground, we would be so much more efficient than what we do usually. Are, are, are there lasting psychological or emotional effects from a journey like this? Well, certainly there are changes. And uh, it, in, in many ways, it's brought me closer to my own emotions. I sort of understand myself a little better now. I feel perhaps a little more confident having faced some fears and, and gone through them. And uh, I do feel closer to nature, that's for sure. And uh, again, I keep quoting from Bertrand. You know, well, he's a psychiatrist, so he's supposed to say <laughs> clever things. But, <laughs> but as Bertrand says, sometimes when you look at a globe, and it's perfectly true, instead of a geography lesson now, it's an emotion. Each sunrise, each sunset was something incredible. And so moments when we were flying just close to the clouds, huge cumulus clouds. And I remember one, more, one afternoon, we were both on our pilot seats over Saudi Arabia with huge cumulus clouds around us and we were talking together having a cup of tea because the balloon was flying very well it's I think the moment that the only moment we could really relax yeah. and then sometimes we gave we just gave a little push of propane to have the balloon going over one cloud and then sink on the other side it was a fabulous moment yeah. like a roller coaster with, among the clouds absolutely yeah. yes <laughs> and, and you see how how nature is alive not only human beings and animals but also the clouds, also the deserts, it's the, the mineral life is, 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 let's say the mineral part of the, the earth is alive also. And most of the people are not aware of it if they don't really see it. How, uh, how smooth is the ride in a balloon? Is, is, is it like a, being in a jetliner? Uh, it's smoother than that. Uh, we, there is no sensation of turbulence. 
Um, when we flew over mountains, for example, in Burma going into China, we got into sort of mountain waves where, where an aeroplane would have suffered um, reasonably severe turbulence, whereas the balloon was simply gently going up and down through maybe 600 feet uh, up and then would go down 600 feet. But you wouldn't be aware of it. You only saw it on the instruments. What do you, what do you hear while you're in there? It's uh, almost silent during the day when we're not using the burners. There's just the occasional um, fan on the life support system that clicks in. At night, you hear the burners that hopefully are fairly rhythmic, and, and if they don't sound rhythmic, then you do something about it. <laughs> so it, 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 was a, it was a joy, really, wasn't it, in, in terms of that? But during the daytime, when it was completely silent and just floating over the world at you know, maybe 60 or 70 miles an hour, it's wonderful. Kind of sensory deprivation, I would think. That's a good point, but I think it was probably the opposite, wasn't yes. it? <laughs> I think we had so much to feel, so much to 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 see, so much to little to enjoy. Mm. Everything was new. There were people who asked asked us if we took books or newspapers to read, but it's the place of the world where you don't want to do those usual and common things. You want to to enjoy because it's once in your life that you do that. Was there something you wanted to bring with you and you forgot and then after three days of the flight you said, oh my gosh, I forgot to bring... <laughs> no, because after three attempts and also two launches that have been that have been cancelled because of bad weather, you really know what you have to take <laughs> with you. <laughs> yeah. Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones remain active in ballooning. And in 2016, Picard was part of the first ever round-the-world solar flight piloting the Solar Impulse 2 on one leg of its journey around the world. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We're on all major podcast platforms, and we post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks for listening. Now, in the interview you just heard, you heard Brian Jones and Bertrand Picard make reference to Richard Branson, with whom they were in intense competition to be the first to circumnavigate the world in a hot air balloon. Well, it turns out, next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1998 interview with billionaire Virgin Group founder Sir Richard Branson. If we take on the airline industry, it is virgin territory for us. If we take on the record industry, it's virgin territory. If we take on the banks, it's virgin territory. So we were very, very, very fortunate coming up with that particular name. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.